In the name of God, Creator, Redeemer, and Giver of Life. Amen. The Gospel story today begins with these astonishing words. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. What on earth could this mean? Eating flesh and drinking blood could sound like some macabre gothic tale. And yet, we take these words of Jesus seriously in a service like this. We call it the Eucharist, the Mass, the Holy Communion, and the Lord's Supper. But what is it about? Bread and wine? Flesh and blood? What do they have in common? How does one become the other? Why do we celebrate this every Sunday? What is going on here? Stephen spoke last week about the parochial Anglican approach to the Blessed Virgin Mary as being pathetically more about what we don't believe than what we actually believe. The suspicions of what many Anglicans think Roman Catholics might believe is what they don't believe, even though they have little understanding of what the Catholics believe. And so we miss and undervalue the rich stories and traditions of the mother of Jesus. It is not dissimilar with the Eucharist. For centuries after the Reformation, Anglicans celebrated Holy Communion only sparingly, because of a belief the Roman Catholics had about the real presence of Christ in the elements of bread and wine. Centuries of beautiful liturgical tradition and music were foregone as we pathetically articulated more about what we didn't believe than what we actually believe. Thank God the Anglican Church has moved beyond that these days. So what is the Mass, the Lord's Supper, about? What is all this fuss about bread and wine and what actually happens to it? Simple questions, my friends. But wars have been fought over the answers to these questions. Wars that basically separated Northern Europe from Southern Europe, Protestants from Catholics. So why do we do it? We do it because of stories about Jesus and passages in our gospel, like our opening sentence today. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. We're going to miss a lot of abiding if we don't grasp the mystery. It's about the sacrament, which I was taught to understand in the Anglican Catechism, was an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The bread and wine we eat and drink are the outward signs of something much more profound. The body, or as in our gospel today, the flesh and blood of Christ, which is the inward and spiritual grace. If we unpackage it, this isn't actually very different, or not different at all, from the Roman Catholic belief, and indeed the belief of many Anglicans, of the presence of Christ in the elements. So what are some of the important aspects of the Eucharist that can help us honour and better understand the tradition and qualities that have been passed down since the Last Supper in that upper room? From a theological and ecclesiological and biblical criticism perspective, this is a minefield of dogma, theology, and even prejudice. Whatever is said, some smart theologian, ecclesiologist, or biblical scholar will trumpet a counter-perspective. 
So let me say from the outset that the following four insights are simply my take on these matters as a result of scholarship, a priestly ministry, and my experience as a Christian pilgrim. They are hopefully accessible reflections on the mystery of the Eucharist. They are not the official ones. They may not be the best ones, but they are my reflections. Take them or leave them, as they say. Firstly, the celebration has a strong, has strong historical elements, taking us back to the origins of our faith. Our Lord began the tradition at the Passover feast, his last supper, in the upper room. The words we use at the consecration of the elements are derived from those recorded at this, this event in the first three Gospels. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. So it was him, our Lord, who introduced the notions, the notion of his presence. This is my body, and this is my blood. We can't get around that. This is recorded in what we call the synoptic tradition, that of the first three Gospels. Interestingly, in John's Gospel, we only have a direct reference to the Eucharist in chapter 6 part of which was read today and is the subject of the sermon. This clearly refers to the identification of himself as body and blood in the elements of bread and wine. Indirect references to this in John's Gospel include referring to Jesus giving the disciples bread and fish at one of his post-resurrection appearances. And there is also the water into wine miracle at the wedding in Cana. One wishes we could still do that, don't we? Clearly, the early church from the beginning saw the Eucharistic sacrament as a central part of their worship. St. Paul refers to it in the 11th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. The words he used there are the closest we have to the liturgies we use today. And when referring to the life of the early church in the book of Acts of the Apostles, the author, probably St. Luke, states, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It was clearly a significant part of their life together. When we look at the writings of the patristics, the early church fathers, we see the author of one Clement refer to the Eucharist around 96 AD or AC. Ignatius of Antioch, around 108, and Justin Martyr set out a liturgical structure of the Eucharist around 150 AD, or AC. Tertullian and Irenaeus refer to it, and later St. Basil, and of course, St. Augustine. This is our whakapapa. It is our heritage, and it has nourished and enriched saints and ordinary Christians for more than two centuries, all over the planet. Secondly, the Eucharist is rich in symbol and earlier history. In the great Jewish story of the Exodus, for example, God fed the people in the wilderness with manna from heaven until they entered the promised land. It is referred to in the Old Testament 
as bread from heaven, which the Welsh, of course, have celebrated for centuries. I say nothing of the rugby. The abundance of grain and wine in ancient Israel was an expression of God's blessing. Isaac asked that God gave grain and wine to Jacob, and the prophet Joel looks forward to a time when the vats will overflow with wine and oil. The miracle at the wedding in Cana has the same connotation. But it is not all historic. The symbols are very current as well. Bread and wine are not primary products. They are made from primary products by people. They symbolise our work, our industry and production. Bread refers to both our need for food and survival and the daily intimacy of our meals at home. We associate wine with a little celebration, joy and pleasure. These are the gifts we offer to God, symbols of history, symbols of our lives to him or her to bless. And it is in the blessing of these gifts that we receive them back as the body and blood of Christ. This is the mystery of faith. It can't be defined any more than love or beauty can, can be defined. Each is subjective with clear elements of objectivity at the same time. Thirdly, the Eucharist or Mass has an important childlike aspect to it echoing Jesus' words. And he said, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Our pilgrim journey is essentially about faith and humility. We each walk to the sanctuary and in reverence place our empty hands together to receive the body of Christ, the life of Christ, the love of Christ. We then wait for the cup, and in the same spirit, to receive his blood, his life force, his energy. Someone said to me once that Thomas, Thomas's response to Jesus, after he had doubted the resurrection, was a childlike way to receive communion. I found it very helpful. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. We go to the sanctuary and kneel or stand with open but empty hands. As one of our liturgies say, our hands were empty and you filled them. This can be a Thomas-style insightful moment where we receive the gifts and the childlike way with a breath of thanks and acknowledgement say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Fourthly and finally, the Eucharist is, is about God's presence. We receive the host, the body of Christ, but at the same time, we are the body of Christ in the world. So what is going on here? I do not hold to the view that because animals were continually offered in the temple as a sacrifice for the sins of the people, that God required Jesus to be tortured and killed in such a ghastly way in order for us to be forgiven. 
that does not reflect the character of God as I understand it. I reckon that Jesus the man lived such a good and qualitative life as the Son of God among us, that people who were in power and were exposed by him for their harsh treatment of others organised to make him pay and snuff him out. In that place, in those days, the Romans used crucifixion as a, as a horrific process of public torture and shame to deter non-compliance with their authority. As Jesus' life was spent ministering to all who were vulnerable and suffer, so in his death he identified with all the suffering of humanity. He literally gave his body and spilt his blood. In this sense, he sacrificed himself for humanity, displaying God's love in the harshest conditions. In our gospel today, he says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. He means it hasn't finished. We are his body in the world. At one level, we draw on the bread of life and the cup of salvation to journey well as Christian pilgrims. At another level, we are part of a sacrificial community, the body of Christ, who are prepared to follow him and do something about the loss of spirituality and suffering in the world today. In the words of the consecration, we recall the Passover meal in the upper room and his request for us to receive his broken body and his spilt blood. In responding to that request, we offer ourselves to be part of his community, a community that is prepared to deny our egos and live a life with him. In the mystery of the consecration and the reception of his body and blood, he gives the gift, a tonga of his presence, and we become again a part of the divine compassion with him. In a theological sense, we become a new humanity in Christ. In this sense, he bestows in consecration and reception of the sacrament his real presence in the Eucharist. Now, there is so much more to this than I can fit into a sermon here, I'm sorry. Hopefully, though, it can help begin or continue some important conversations together.